Hello and welcome back to The Long Short. I'm Drew Nicholl and I'm delighted to be rejoined in the studio by my co-host Tom Kyo. Tom, it's great to have you back. Yeah, thanks Drew. It's great to be back. Good to be speaking to you. And although we haven't shared a studio for a little while now, I know you haven't been neglecting your podcasting duties because you've been working on something a little bit different in the background that I believe you are finally ready to let our listeners know about. Yeah, that's right. For background, we've spent the past two years going around the world seeking out interesting people within the alternative investment industry to speak to our long short podcast. And the point that was made to us that we weren't really making the most of the community of leading fund manager members at AIMA counts among its membership. So to rectify that oversight, we've partnered with KPMG to bring you all something a little different in what we are calling the Perspective Series. I'm intrigued. Tell me more. Yes, Perspectives is a dedicated series of conversations with leading CEOs and founders of alternative investment firms from around the world. And over the next few months, we will be bringing listeners along with us to hear from them on a variety of areas, including how they attract and retain top talent in the context of the fierce war for talent out there, as well as how they navigate the increasingly complex operational scaling challenges of running a modern investment funds business and much, much more. And for this dedicated series, I believe, as well as your usual hosts of Tom and myself, we will be joined by KPMG's John Budzina, who has the very grand title of Managing Director and US National Leader for Market Developments for Alternative Investments, who will be helping us along the way to ask those questions that you wish you could ask if you found yourself in a room with any of these industry leaders. So sit back. We hope you'll enjoy the show. And thank you for joining us. Seth Fisher, you're very welcome to Perspectives. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Drew. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here. So you currently run a worldwide investment firm based out of Hong Kong. Can you tell us a little bit about your background, Seth? Sure, Tom. I grew up in New York, and I was always that kid. You know, we always we all know one of those kids that, like, if you gave me a birthday gift when I was 10 years old, I was out back selling it. Right. And like, you know, everybody, every neighborhood has one of those kids that like, you know, all the mothers, or the parents call up and like, are you going to have a dinner party? He's going to organize all the neighborhood kids going to help you waiter and help park your cars and help clean up afterwards where there's a snowstorm and he's going to organize everybody going to clean your walks and clean your driveways and like, you know, and ran the newspaper around and ran, you know, every and like sold tomatoes and anything else he grew in his backyard and everything else. I was always that like, you know, commercial kid. Uh, so I grew up in New York. Uh, I went to high school in the city, went to college in the city, uh, went to the army, came back uh, in Israel, came back from the army and was looking for a job. And, uh, you know, somebody told me this thing is about uh, something called the hedge fund. And remember, this is like, this is actually, you know, January 1995 and hedge funds were like a tiny sliver in the entire universe. And, uh, so describe the hedge funds as like, here's, they have capital and they're just looking for ideas. And I'm like, don't worry, I have plenty of ideas. I just have no capital. Uh, and uh, I got a job working for free at Highbridge, which was an awesome opportunity. And I you know, thank Henry Swierke and Glenn Dubin for that opportunity. It was awesome. Started off getting coffee. And, uh, you know, I, got, I, got, I was getting coffee. I was working on uh, trying to figure out whether Highbridge should keep their excess cash at the time at these two little firms called Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers, right? Both of which are uh, of blessed memory. Uh, and, uh, you know, trying to, like, and thinking about like Fed funds versus LIBOR, LIBOR of blessed memory at this stage. Uh, but, uh, and, uh, and Alex Jackson was working an idea on the whiteboard. 
uh, and he was like, you know, trying to figure out a problem. And he said, and I, and I suggested, hey, why don't you do it this way? And he's like, uh, well, uh, what's your name again? I'm like, oh, I'm Seth. <laughs> and he's like, uh, how would that work? And I'm like, oh, you know, it's work this way. And if you want to sell the shares onshore, then you converted the onshore rate and then bought, bought these and bought this and then sold it offshore. You can basically of the on, onshore and offshore FX rates in Venezuela at the time. And he's like, oh, that's a great idea. Let's go present it to Henry. We presented it to Henry and we invested you know, half a million bucks uh, and we made 125 grand. Then he's like, oh, uh, why don't you come here and like, why don't you sit down next to me and why don't you do that again? Uh, and uh, I basically got a job on the desk and I uh, stopped getting coffee and all of a sudden had a job. And uh, and so next trades were like FX, were, were, cash, were cash extraction trades and warrants in Italy at the time. Italian rates were super high. This is pre the Euro. Uh, and there's just, you know, ways of, you could just, buy warrants and short stock against there's all these like arbitrage opportunities and then effectively goldman sachs was selling a portfolio of cbs in japan and we stayed up one night and looked at them two nights looked at them uh and they gave me an opportunity we bought them and then next thing you know i had a night job and i've been working asian hours ever since seven years later jump into 2022 yeah having worked for seven successful years at hybrid you then decided we break away from I would describe as fairly somewhat safe security that comes with working with an investment bank. You decided to break away, risk it all, and go it all alone. I guess that goes back to your days when you were that kid selling on street corners and whatever. That entrepreneurial spirit pushed you, that gene pushed you to go, you know what, I've got to do this for myself. Right? You know what? Yes, but Highbridge is an extraordinarily, extraordinarily successful fund, extraordinarily established fund. And you're right. It, it uh, I didn't need to leave in any way, shape, or form, but you know, let me let me also for those who don't know. I mean, working in investment bank these days is that there's there's risk everywhere, and there's risk sitting in investment bank also. You know, we just said talked about Bear Stearns and Lehman, and uh, unfortunately for a lot of friends who worked at Credit Suisse just now. So there's nothing. You know, the 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 kind of the only most secure way is to look be able to continue to produce returns, whether that's at Highbridge, whether it's at Oasis, or whatever that might be. I left. We had an opportunity to get seed capital, uh, $180 million seed capital at the time from AIG by way of DKR, uh, and was able to, you know, was able to start a fund. I viewed it as doing the exact same thing. I had a seed at Highbridge because, you know, I was able and, you know, and extremely fortunate to be able to find opportunities to make money with that money, and, you know, and doing that, uh, doing that for effectively under my own umbrella was the same thing. We we're going to survive and do well if we were able to find opportunities and be able to capitalize them on them. And if we weren't going to, then, you know, I'd have to, you know, self lawful and do something else in life. So tell us a little bit about Oasis and, you know, the name and the, the structure of the fund. And what were your goals when you set up the firm, really? And could you just give us a little bit of the highlights from day one to today? Look, we are just trying to make a buck and not lose one. We're trying to do that in a sustainable, in a, in a sustainable long-term way. I'd like to be in this business for a very long period of time. I've been lucky enough to be doing this for 28 years. I'd like to, you know, I'd like to do this for another 28 years, if not more. Uh, I, you know, as you've heard, I started off, you know, doing some Venezuelan FX ARB, uh, and then there was an opportunity in Japan. I've been looking at Japan ever since. But you know, generally, we're just looking for opportunities, and those opportunity sets have been very different over those period of times. Uh, there's opportunity sets. You know, we like knowing more than everybody else about the situation, about the company. Uh, we like to often be first in the situation. We've been uh, at the advent of activism and, and, and engagement opportunities in Japan. 
Uh, we've been at the advent of a lot of other, you know, a lot of other opportunities. We've been providing capital for Japanese companies for a very long period of time. Uh, invariably, uh, originally only when they would let us in, uh, when they'd uh, help us, but, you know, provide enormous amount of financing for Mitsubishi Motors, uh, for SoftBank once upon a time, uh, for all the Japanese banks when they needed restructuring. This is all like in the late 90s and early, and, and early 2000s. Uh, and then, you know, through today, continuing providing capital for companies. Sometimes that's buying secondary shares, but sometimes that's buying, you know, pri providing primary capital for them. Uh, there was an extraordinary opportunity in Japan of, you know, ever since I went to visit my first company in person and back in 1996 in Japan, you kind of go, you look at these companies, you're like, you know, you walk out of the room, you're like, if only if, if only if they'd focus on return, if only if they focus on making net income, if only if they'd focus on like on monetizing this fantastic IP they have, if only if they'd go ahead and like, you know, stop losing money in some legacy business that they don't need to be in. If only if they would go ahead and, and like go mobile, if only if they'd go ahead and use the land that they're just not using, but they all own. If only if they'd use all these different assets they had for productive, you know, for productive uses, uh, like that would just be an incredible opportunity for them and for the whole company, for all the stakeholders in the company. And yet, you, you know, you weren't invited in. And so you weren't to kind of allow it into the, you know, you weren't, that was, the conversation was kind of like, you would sit there and listen to what they had to say. You maybe make some very friendly suggestions, but you couldn't be, at the time, you weren't kind of welcome in to get, make more productive, you know, more productive or more aggressive suggestions. Or like, I really think you need to be doing this. You could say that nicely, but uh, at the time, the, the Sacho kind of CEO at the time could like easily reject you and, and didn't have to listen to you. Uh, and that, and so, we watched that happen. We watched that happen through 05 and 06 and 07 when some people from New York came in and said, you know, the original round of activism in Japan said, you know, this is my company. This, you know, you have like 20% net cash and I want that money. Uh, and basically Japan watched them, watched Japan throw them out. At the time, we were very engaged in a couple of companies that invited us in that really needed our help. A uh, former colleague of mine is actually still the CEO of one of those companies. Uh, and that brings us all the way to 2013, at the very, very, very beginning of Abenomics, when uh, we were we were invested in Nintendo. We spent a lot of time with some the large amount of the shareholder base in Nintendo, and Nintendo was trading around cash value at the time with all this extraordinary iconic IP, and all of three and a half million people in the world were using it. That IP that was the oh, that was the entire install base from Wii U, and so I was talking to Wadasan, the CEO. I was like, look, you need to go mobile. You need to like monetize that IP and you need to make that IP available to everybody else. Otherwise, the IP is going to die. And so that's about going mobile. That's about movies. That's about TV. That's about amusement parks. That's about like all the ways for like make sure that our IP doesn't die. And yes, it's going to make Nintendo a lot more money as well. But it's going to be good for everybody. It's going to make sure that Nintendo has a long-term business. If you, if you were to define activism then, you've mentioned about returning to the shareholders. Uh, what what other elements of activism would you describe as being you know thinking about it in the broad definition of the term? And my second part of that question said is how is it different or has it changed where you are in APAC versus the rest of the world, say in the US? It's dramatically different in APAC, but let me let me start with the first part. Engagement for me or activism for me is how to make a more profitable company, and this is not from not from 
the shareholders' perspectives is from all the stakeholders' perspective. And that, Tom, is what's different between you know Japan activism, what we're doing there, and where like the U.S. is, which I would say like is the 28th inning, kind of like the longest baseball game ever. Right. So like the, the U.S. is like far, far, far advanced. In Japan right now, almost all thoughtful investors would agree with kind of what, what our suggestions for the company are. You don't need to have some legacy business that loses a small amount of money every year and has no, no prospect for making money. You don't need to be sitting on empty land that you have no plan on developing because it, it's just unproductive use of assets. You don't need to be sitting there with, with great titles like Godzilla and everything else sitting in your basement without selling it. You know, you, like th these should be things that you should be doing, like actively doing, and you need to have a digital strategy. And you know, so these are things that are good for everybody. So first of all, the point here is that it's good for all stakeholders. This is generally good for all stakeholders. Everybody would agree. This is no, there's no arguments yet in Japan about whether it's, you know, the, if you have a short-term outlook versus a medium-term outlook versus an all-term outlook, they're all together because they're, they're, quite frankly, they're, they're, it's good for everybody and everybody involved. So while in the U.S., I think this has gotten a lot more personal, it's got a, your, your perspective on what the company should do is a lot more subjective to uh, whether you have a short-term or medium-term or long-term view, right? And, and honest people can really debate about what the company should do. Honest, like honest, serious investors might have a very serious, you know, serious debate. And often a lot of it has to do with financial engineering. Right? And so what we're doing is kind of not that primarily. Right? Now, you know, I, I understand the net financial engineering part of it, but primarily this because you know this is such early stages. There's just so much fat to cut. It's like so easy to talk about what's good for everybody involved. I mean, my bad joke about the subject is like, you know, U.S. companies for lots of reasons, as, as well as like, you know, as well as shareholders, you know, as well as uh, the, 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 uh, you know, equity options and the, and the shareholdings that enormous amount of the, of the, of the, of the management have, right? you know, beyond those and a lot of other reasons, it's like U.S. companies haven't seen a carb since Bill Clinton was in office, right? They're like been on a keto diet for 25 years. Right? And in Japan, like everybody's still eating like a bowl of ramen at lunch every day, right? Like if you just like cut that down to like the smaller size bowl of ramen, right? This is enormous amount of fat to cut, right? and you can make these businesses a lot more profitable, turn up their ROEs a lot more, double their margins, and all of that would just have a massively, you know, massively positive impact on those businesses. And so we did, that's why we're just in very early stages. So let's pivot for a second and discuss some of the other trends that are impacting the asset management industry and the world at large at the moment. And arguably the biggest mega trend of them all is the growing influence of technology on every aspect of our lives. The topic talked about most right now is, of course, the arms race that seems to be going on in Silicon Valley in the development of AI with obviously ChatGPT, Bard, there's more and more coming every day, more and more plugins. It seems to be all anyone is talking about. So just what, what's your take on all this? Awesome. It's all awesome. I mean, it's, it's, it's awesome. Like what could be better? Like all of a sudden, everybody could be even more productive. And so, yes, it could take away some of the, of the uh, more basic work from people. And, and and as everybody's written already, that you know, same. So said the buggy makers as well. Oh, what about the buggy makers? Yes, they're gonna have to like redo what they. They have to learn something else. 
right? And what about like the subsistence farmers who like planted by hand and all of a sudden you had to plow? Yeah, it just means we could all be much more productive. It's awesome. I, I, you know, we have a committee internally at Oasis to implement, it, uh, implement all of AI as much as possible across the board. Like where can we use it? In the research process, how can we use it in our trading process? How can we use it in our operations process? How can we use it in our NDA and some of our compliance processes? How can we use it to make us more effective and efficient? And so I think everybody needs to use that tool. You know, this is like podcasts for that matter, talking about, uh, is this the end of education? Oh, sorry, of education, of homework. Like for my kids, is this the end of homework? Like what does this mean for homework? Because nowadays you could just like have AI do it. For that matter, we had a candidate apply, we think, and had, I think he had AI uh, basically write, the, write his PowerPoint presentation for him. Now, uh, it's not good that he got caught by us, so it just means he didn't do a good job implementing AI, but it means my kids are going to go ahead and, and you know, yes, education has to change to, to know how to implement and use AI appropriately. But, you know, sticking your head in the ground is the same way as like teaching your kids to use an abacus instead of a calculator. You don't want to teach them how to use, them, how to use the most powerful tools poss possible and how to, efficient, uh, to be more efficient. So you're looking to incorporate it sort of front to back on the firm. But just to drill into that a little more, do you not have any concerns about crowding around everybody implementing the same AI that's pulling on the same data? And, it, it, you know, again, from your point of view, you want to know more than anybody else. How is, is that going to take away from your edge if everybody just has these fantastic resources at their fingertips? The best news is that AI is super helpful for a research tool. It's not the best, most helpful for a creative tool. There's still no replacement for man from a creativity point of view. I mean, look, you know, uh, same way everybody might hire super smart people out of uh, out of uh, a couple of Ivies and say, oh, well, everybody's got the same education. I don't have any edge anymore. That's true, but they don't. They, they teach you a lot of the tools, and if you get a couple of get a couple of MBAs of like the same MBA school, uh, and they all know, you know, they all know the exact same case studies and how to implement the same SWOT analysis. But the fact of the matter is that. that Creativity still has a super, you know, there's a super advantage of creativity. There's still an advantage of being commercial. Right? And there's still a massive advantage of being cu curious. And those are the traits that we kind of tr we try to hire for and find. But AI doesn't, you know, doesn't solve for that. I'm not worried about AI. I'm not worried about AI taking away our edge. I think you know, you only, you only, our only biggest problem is if you don't implement it fast enough. So given then, um, set. Um, wearing your activist hat, do you think then that AI-focused tech firms could be an area that um, might be in need of oversight from firms like yourselves, given the recent comments about the need for better regulation and stronger governance? This is kind of outside of my, uh, is above my pay grade in many ways. Right. There was that. Was it? What was that the experiment that was done a couple of days ago? Of uh, you know, this is just an just a, just an experiment. But you're like you told a uh, you told an AI. Uh, it was an AI guided uh, drone to attack a certain target and not let anybody stop it. Right. And so it went ahead and killed its operator. And then he said, "Okay, you can't kill your operator." So instead, it just destroyed the communication tower from the operator. Right. And so like we're all worried of like somewhere between Hal and like you know and and Schwarzenegger come back in the Terminator, 
like somewhere between those two worlds, we're worried about uh, AI taking the world, taking over the world. And I am not adverse to the feelings of like, let's be careful about what the technology is. That's not a new problem either. Meaning, you know, the good news is we have to be careful what technology we, we create. There's also hopefully somebody can unplug the computer. And the same way, and so then, you know, the, te te the technology is super powerful and it's really de de dependent on, who, you know, who is at the controls of that. So, yes, I'm, I'm all in favor of, you know, smartly designed protocols and, and systems around these things. So something we've danced around a little bit here, but not addressed directly uh, in terms of megatrends of our industry is ESG or environmental, social and governance policies and, and trends and investment strategies. Just sort of tying in a few of these threads that we, we've touched upon here in terms of your role as an activist and evolution in technology and also looking at this from a, the point of view of, of APAC as well. How do you incorporate ESG? And maybe just to, to add on to that as well, how new is ESG to you in the sense that I imagine you've been focusing on governance forever, right? I've been focused on governance forever. That's basically it. Yes. I mean, investing in emerging markets means you need to focus on governance forever. This is not new. And, you know, and what, and, you know, talking about in Japan in particular, you know, corporate governance is the broad, broad remit. This is also about having women on boards and diversity on boards, of which we're a big sponsor of. Uh, I've sponsored uh, 68 women last year to get training to be direct uh, to be directors and, and, and uh, of, of Japanese companies. One of them today is a chairwoman of a of an independent chairwoman of a Japanese company. Uh, she's probably the second Japanese ch uh, second chairwoman of a Japanese company ever, independent chairwoman ever. Uh, the uh, so, you know, but governance in Japan is that and more. Governance in Japan is everything. Governance in Japan is like how to make a more profitable company, right? How to make a better company because a good governance means like, look, let's make a good, sustainable, better, profitable company. Yes, it's about diversity. Yes, it's about, uh, that's about having better, uh, having whistleblower procedures and, and having functioning nomination and compensation committees. That's about actually having real oversight over the, over the board. That's about really being open to bids if, if and when they happen. It also means about improving, improving ROE. It's about, improving your, it's about improving, your, improving your balance sheet. It's about improving your earnings. It's about focused on how to like produce a better business. That's holistic. And I think that's true for the E and the S part as well. It's extraordinarily important if you want to go ahead and run a better business. Yes, you need to create you need to create better opportunities for all your employees. That's all of your employees, your female and male employees, your Japanese and non -Jap and non-Japanese employees in the Japanese in the Japan context. But that's about working on how to like create a better working environment so that companies like seven eleven and seven and I and, and and can actually go ahead and and, and find people who want to work there. Or, and expand that you know, opportunity set for people. That's also about on the E side. That's about companies being yeah, more sustainable, you know, and create better businesses for the long run and more profitable businesses for the long run. And so yes, you know, we talked to you know Seven and I, and afterwards they go ahead and implement the CTO. They didn't have a CTO when you engage them. And it's Japan, right? So is like, theft is extraordinary, extraordinarily small. Why are you going ahead and standing online at Seven Eleven with like a long line behind you, and then you know just to walk up? So you can buy like a pet bottle of water and they can wrap it in two different plastic bags, put some tape over it, and then you can walk out of the store. Why can't you just go ahead and have an app on your phone, scan the bottle and walk out? 
And so like, let's go ahead and work on that. You don't, you don't need actually even the full Amazon Go super complex store with like lots of great, you know, shelving spaces and lots of great cameras everywhere. You can even just have an app on the phone and trust people because actually that, that like works in the social fabric of Japan. But you know, that's, that's good from an environmental point of view. That's good from a social point of view. You can't get where people are way overworked trying to work at these stores for, you know, for 10, 12, 15 hour shifts. And, and, uh, and it's good clearly from a governance point of view because it makes businesses more profitable. So we're interested in, in we're interested and engaged in all three. KPMG is a global professional services firm providing audit, tax, and advisory services to many of the world's leading alternative investment management firms. To address the specific challenges and opportunities unique to alternative investments, KPMG has dedicated practitioners focusing on hedge fund, private equity, and real estate organizations. Our professionals devote their time to provide innovative and strategic solutions to alternative investment managers in areas ranging from strategy to operational and compliance functions. Through the knowledge of the industry-leading practices and customized technology systems, they provide advice and support that deliver value to these organizations and their investors. For more information, please visit kpmg.com. So switching gears for a moment then, let's talk about your future priorities for the firm. Over, say, the next five years, and, and I'm keeping this purposefully broad, what are your priorities? We continue to try to make outstanding risk-adjusted returns for our investors. That's it. <laughs> you know, every single day, we're just trying to make a buck and not lose one. Every single day, we're trying to do that in a, in a, in a way that's productive for everybody productive for our investee companies and, and productive for our investors. That's, that's it. I, I, you know, if we're all going to do really well, if we could produce great risk-adjusted returns for our investors. And um, the question of talent management is an evergreen issue. We've, it's been seen in a new light since COVID-19 and we've had the so-called great resignation and other pressures on keeping top talent. So what is your strategy when it comes to getting the right talent into the firm? I imagine it goes beyond being competitive on compensation, right? Look, obviously, pay people well is uh, is always a great place to to start and end. But uh, we don't we don't typically compete with people on talent. We typically will hire eclectic people, and so we like people, as I said, who are cur- you know creative, curious, and commercial. I like Tyler Cowen's book on talent recently as well, where he talks about creativity, but also grit and energy. And I think we kind of got that always in interviews, and you see that in resumes. But we like we typically hire people with like zero to three years of experience. We typically hire people very, very, very young, and then we grow them up in our culture. And they grow up in our culture, and invariably we do, we don't we don't typically ever lose them to another fund. We lose them maybe to them starting their own funds, but. We don't lose them to to other funds, and so uh, there's a there's a culture of being extraordinarily open and transparent. Everybody, everybody internally can see everything. Hopefully, I'm a good partner for everybody, so I'm a good colleague to them, and you know, and extraordinarily open to their ideas and listen and, and listen to them, and 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 uh, so hopefully it's a good place uh, and a productive place for people to work. And yes, if you pay them really well, then hopefully they should stay there. They, they should, you know, continue, we should continue working together. So that's really interesting then. So you, you very much go for the philosophy of trying to mold people 
who are sort of a blank slate maybe and so where where do you go about finding these people because that's always you know it's very easy to just poach people from an investment bank or something and and in terms of oasis's growth strategy over the next few years is there a particular area that you're looking to grow into is there a specific type of uh, person with a particular type of skill set that you're most looking to build on in this sort of short to medium term Yes, I'm a buyer. I'm trying to hire great raw talent and then make sure they have, they have a, a very, very, very basic skill set, a toolkit. But if you're creative and curious and commercial, you'd be able to, you should be able to grow and learn a lot of those skills. And we're prepared to pay for educa- continued education that. Uh, we're doing that all the time. We're doing that today in three hours' time. We have a teach-in by uh, actually a, uh, an entrepreneur who started a business and just sold it for $7 billion plus. Uh, and so I, I asked him, I, I was extremely impressed by him, and I asked him to kind of do a teaching with our entire team of how we built that business. And so we, we spent a lot of time on continuing education. I spent a lot of time reading. I spent a lot of time you know, sending books and sending ideas around to the office. Uh, and so we want to try to create that culture of kind of continued curiosity uh, about what's going on. Uh, that's super important to me. And if we can hire people that also have a w- very big toolkit, they could do lots of different things. And so I really like people who have like a broad st- broad set skill set, a broad set toolkit, and now that flexibility in mind to be able to do that. And so that, that means in the narrow construct that they look at things from equity perspective, they can think from a bond perspective, looking from an options perspective. That's in a, a slightly broader sense. They have a very good accounting skill set. They also have an investigatory skill set. And that's in terms of like the types of people we hire I do want to complement the type, you know people with each other. So we have former salesmen have a great un you know an unheralded skill of like actually being able to pick up the phone and call people <laughs> and talk to people. It's like funny. There's a tons of uh, people in the in the hedge fund industry that you know are like most comfortable behind a screen and most comfortable like you know sitting behind a Bloomberg screen by themselves. But you know the skill set of actually being able to pick up the phone and call anybody and get them on the phone is super is super valuable. Foreign people who worked in like lots of different types of investigations, people who've done uh, forensic analysis, people who've done who've been architects, people who have been, uh, you know, or uh, degrees in architecture, people who have degrees in math, uh, you know, degrees in political science, degrees in law, like you know, the whole uh, the whole gamut or the whole kind of spectrum of different types of skill sets, and uh, so it, it's really about the the raw talent you have and your ability to apply that rather than like the fact that you happen to have done two years of invested banking. We do have a couple of those too. <laughs> and that's also a skill set. Right? But I don't do well with people. We don't do well with people who, who, every, who seem to have more than a couple of years, more than two or three years, because then they seem to kind of think this is carpentry. And they're like, this is how you do it. And this is how you do it. And this is how you do it. And they stop like, they stop asking all the questions. And like the first day at Oasis, I, I say, look, I, I sit everybody down and give them a, full, a big starting day speech. But I ask, ask them, look, you know, the way we do things is to the way we just happen to do them. If you have any new ideas, any different ideas, any questions about why we do it, speak up. And speak up now when you have the most o- wide open eyes. Right? Like people like sit, sit there and they like think they're an analyst and they just have to analyze it. And as you, and maybe as I've, I've, try, I've tried to explain, but like we try to, as an activist, you want to think not like a fan in the stadium, but you want to think like a player coach or even a player, right? And if you think about a player coach, there's a whole different way of thinking about it. 
right? Like what you're actually going to do rather than like sitting as a fan and betting on and betting on the game. You're not just betting on the game. You're betting on the game, but you're having influence on it. You're having influence on it. And you can be a participant on it and what they should be doing, not just what they are doing. I, I had a call this morning with a, a Southside analyst in the company, and I asked him three times, like, if you're the CEO, what would you do? And this is a published analyst. He's had a 38-page report on, like, on the company, and he just couldn't answer the question. He said, well, what's what they're doing? I said, no, no, no. I'm not asking what they're doing. I, I know what they're doing. I'm asking you, if you're the CEO, what would you do? No, no. Well, what they are doing, he kept, he couldn't answer the question. Right? Now, I wasn't interviewing him for, for a job. I haven't been talking to him about, about the company. I was kind of curious what – I had some questions of him in particular on this particular company, but he couldn't even answer that question. I think that's like – that was typical of a lot of people who do this for five or seven or 10 or 15 or 20 years. They're analyzing what is and not wondering what could be. It's that outside-the-box thinking. I think I know the answer to this question, but I just want to put it to you directly. In terms of your outlook for APAC as a region, and I completely appreciate your point that each of these markets are distinct and you can't just bundle them up. But just from a very high level view, how excited are you about prospects for APAC? I am super excited about the uh, uh, about the opportunities I see today. It's above my pay grade to sit here and tell you like what my long term vision is for China or for India or for Vietnam or for Korea or for kind of all the different dynamic or for Japan. I mean, I could talk, you know, and can I have a cocktail conversation about them? Sure. Right? Do I have any? really strongly held convictions about this? Not at all. Have I sit here and watched that MSCI world is like not performed very well? So you know, MSCI developed market has not performed very well over the last 10 and 20 years? Absolutely. Am I am I, am I, am I, am I humbled by the fact of like, you know, Hong Kong exchange, you know, Hong Kong market uh, is you know, not performed very well over the last 10 and 20 years? Absolutely. Do I recognize that? Absolutely. Do I think that like so a lot of these things come do come down to, to governance uh, and there's an enormous amount of cheap securities and maybe like you're cherry picking the wrong hour and that's why there's been no performance in in, uh, in many of the Chinese indices absolutely but it, it um, you know yes the US is crushed and developed markets have crushed China and Hong Kong for that matter uh, so there is been an economic miracle in many ways in what's happened in so many of these countries but that's very different than than stock price performance. I mean, you know, one, and this is just cocktail talk because this is like not my, not what I do necessarily as my day job, but multiples matter. <laughs> and, uh, it, it, you know, it's a lot of these businesses have grown a lot and they've made a lot more money and they have a lot more cash than ever before. But if you bought them at 30 times earnings and then they all of a sudden traded five times earnings, heck, you know, you have to, you have to grow a lot more to kind of grow yourself out of that, out of that implosion of multiple. And so multiples matter in, in some, you know, what you're buying something at multiple wise matters some, in many cases a lot more than what, uh, you know, than what the actually underlying performance has been. So how do you perceive then um, alternative investment strategies in general then um, and the value proposition for those strategies continuing to expand for institutional and other significant investors over the coming years? There is enormous I think actually this industry is extraordinarily important. I think it's extraordinarily important. A good value proposition in the best of funds and the top top quartile of funds to produce superior risk-adjusted returns for investors. That's because there's just so many people who are bound by so many different rules 
that just should be a, an opportunity set for those who can flirt around them to find a, different opportunity sets uh, and be the first of them and be the best of them and you know and take the lion's share of the rewards there. So I think that's true for all different types of funds, whether those are macro funds, whether those are micro arb funds, whether those like are very uh, you know very interesting kind of long short businesses. I think there's a lot of room for the people to generate genuine long-term alpha. I, I think it's also important structurally in a world where you have enormous amount of index, index tracking funds, that if you just have a world of index tracking funds, you don't have anybody actually going to go ahead and enforce it. There is going to be governance there. We're going to, going to go ahead and enforce an actual company that management is acting appropriately in the, in the interest of shareholders and all stakeholders and not just in their own interests. And, or, or, or that you even have the best of management and not the worst of management there, who just who are lazy and not doing so, or not doing what they should be doing, or, or ruled by nepotism or doesn't have functioning boards or any of the above. We don't have people that actually act, actively call that out. You're just, you're just driving an autopilot, and that's going to decay and degrade the all the index tracking funds as well. Index tracking funds go ahead and say, oh, you know what? We, did, we had very little slippage because you charge only five basis points to track the index. That's great, but if the index doesn't move anywhere, it doesn't help. And I think that was like the problem in Japan, and that's, that was part of the dynamics behind the third arrow and this kind of corporate governance change. And that's why you know, the GPIF, the biggest pension fund in the world, the government, the government pension fund in Japan, we said, you know what, we need some, we need, you know, we need people like me. I mean, and people like you that are reaching out. And we need people like you to go ahead and spur the, this change in these companies. So yeah, we don't. Yeah, we pay very little amount on like our index tracking, but actually the index will go up because you're going to drive that change. And so if if everybody's in autopilot, we're just going to hit. You know, we're just not going to go anywhere. And so I think like structurally, they you know structurally, you form you know, general. A uh, lot of funds form a very uh, important role. Even arbitrage as well means prices can be more efficient if anybody's in that tracking. So structurally, I think generally the whole industry forms an important role. And individually, the top quartile should produce really you know, superior adjust risk-adjusted returns over the long run. So I've asked you about your outlook for APAC. And if I just was to zoom out a little bit further and just ask you to quantify your optimism for the industry... Uh, on a scale of uh, one to five, so one being uh, it's all going downhill, five being the most bullish you could possibly be, what number would you give the industry over, say, the next five years? And if you could just talk around that a little bit in terms of if it's if it's not a five, then then what headwinds are you perceiving? Okay, I would say it's like you know around a four, and so it's a broad buck, you know. So it's a four, and not a five. But it's a four, not a three. You know, not one, two, or three. And it's gotten more regulated than ever before. Regulations continue to uh, to increase, and the costs of running a business continue to increase. And so that's like the only reason there's not a five, because that's a barrier to entry for a lot of people who would otherwise smart start funds and produce and like and would could create uh, you know a, a could be great business leaders and could be great investors, but just have all these headwinds that they need, they need a fairly large amount of AUM to really get started. And so I think that that's like my reason I'm not a five. The fact that that, the fact of the matter is you have so many people just index tracking and, and hugging the index creates even more opportunity for hedge funds. And it's not quite the industry that I started back in 95 when like hedge funds were like, nobody even knew what a hedge fund was. Uh, and like, you know, long term was a billion dollars in 1998. I mean, it was like, like, 
uh, you know, and hybrids were $300 million when I started there. And like all these businesses were very, very, very small. And you're able to go out around and pick and, and pick your spots and, you know, literally not be a price maker, but a, but be a price taker and just kind of, kind of take the opportunities when there were all these inefficiencies. I mean, there's super inefficiencies in Japan at the time when pre this regulatory change in Japan where they issued convertible bonds at 20% premium and they should be 25% premium. And they were doing it because like long onlys were the only big buyers of them. Uh, long only insurance, sorry, long only insurance companies, not even funds, but insurance companies only big buyers. And they just issued them systematically as surrogate equity. So there are all these like strange phenomenons. And that was like, that was a, that was an eight on your zero to five list, right? A one, a one to five scale, right? So it's not that world, but it's not also the world where you kind of got into in the, uh, maybe in 07 and maybe like in, in 13 or 14 a bit, where you had a phenomenon where in so many markets, hedge funds were the price makers, right? And that became really competitive in some mark in some strategies where all of a sudden, like you're competing against a bunch of other people on, on Madison Avenue or in the West End in London, right? Where it was like, that's a game that I don't like to be in at all. And I kind of step, choose to step out. I have no interest in competing against other, other really smart people. Like it's just, let's find a, let's find a business where you're not competing with them. And so uh, I, you know, when, when it gets to be super competitive and it feels a lot more like a zero sum game and yes, the top quartile will outperform but the bottom quartile will like suck the, you know, will exactly balance out the bottom quartile and, and, and investor, you know, uh, you know, investors don't, you know, if they just have a broad portfolio, won't net net make, won't net net, net make any alpha or any, you know, superior risk adjusted returns at all. I don't think we're there at all. I think we're not there because there's been so much money that's gone into index tracking for businesses who are not looking at this. And so so many opportunities kind of to, 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 to skate around. There's also tons of opportunities as paradigm changes that have happened. And so that means that there's a lot more opportunities also to kind of skate around and see different up and kind of be on the beginning of a paradigm change. Uh, and, you know, we're seeing that as rates go up, it's hard to find people who actually remember what it's like when rates go up. You see it in an inflationary world, and it's hard to find people, you know, outside of like asking your parents or what it's like to live with real inflation. Uh, and it's, uh, there's tons of uh, regulatory regimes changes. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's war in the continent of Europe again. And there's like lots of things that, 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 that we haven't seen for, you know, a generation or two now. I mean, I'm 51 and, uh, you know, I've barely seen these things. And, uh, you know, you have to go back and like talk to people who are 75 and 80 to have really seen a lot of these things. Uh, and, uh, so, you know, yes, it helps to read a lot of history. It also helps that people to, to speak to people who have like, had these experiences themselves, or you know, you can read that in biographies and the stories from people as well. But it's uh, th that that all creates lots of different opportunities. So I'm, you know, I'm I'm very bullish the ability, you know, the opportunity set. Questions are, can we and others kind of execute on that? Uh, and said, in addition to your real passion that you've shared with us for your job, for your day job, you also make time for several charities and charity work. Can you briefly tell us about this? Sure. Uh, let's start with uh, the Count Lung Foundation, which operates out of our offices, which I co-founded with, with Gath Khatri, whose mission is to treat for and to try to prevent uh, and to care for women, women with gynecological cancers. And we set up the, the foundation in memory of a colleague of ours, Karen Long, who passed away 11 years ago from cervical cancer. And the, her, her last wish or wishes were 
to that nobody would have to suffer from and die from the same cancer that she had. The amazing thing about most most types of cervical cancer is actually preventable. And so we use the same kind of technology from an activist campaign point of view in this case to go ahead and pay for cervical cancer vaccinations and promote cervical cancer vaccinations, HPV vaccinations in this case, so that uh, women in Hong Kong would not, have to, would not get HPV, would not have to die. And so we spent a fair bit of time, we've, we were successful in that, in that campaign, and now it's part of a program for all young girls, effectively, the age of 13 to 16 to get HPV vaccinations. Uh, we still have enormous amount of testing to try to get pap smears and other and other innovative technology to get women to get easier and better tested. So it's an Asian phenomenon. Enormous amount of women don't go to a, a, don't go to a gynecologist as a regular part of her going to a doctor's, and they don't get enough pap smears. So there's lots of other methods to deal with this, uh, as well as other other research in this in, in this regard uh, to reduce. Uh, to reduce cervical cancer, we we care for uh, women with other. Uh, we care for and help work on on treatment for other women with other gynecological cancers. Uh, and we do this not just in Hong Kong. We do this across the region. We're running currently running an HPV can, campaign in Japan as well. And so that's 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 run out of our office. And um, same way you want to give build a portfolio. And lots of different types of investments. I think about investments, the things that we might think it might yield fruit in 30 days, some years that might yield fruit in three months, some things that might yield fruit in a year, and some, th some things that might yield fruit in five years and in 10 years. Same way we're trying to build a, 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 try to build a, a charitable portfolio of things that are producing short-term, medium-term, long-term good. And so that's a wide, a wide variety of different, of different types of things. That's but you know things that are clearly related to medical fields, related to poverty, uh, related to education, related to policy, and so yes, that's uh, kind of hopefully I'm like yeah using the same the same set of skills that I'm able to uh, execute in the financial you know in our financial portfolio and our charitable portfolio. Thank you, Seth. It's been a real pleasure uh, to speak to you and, and and for letting our listeners into your world. Um, and we wish you all the best, and hopefully we we'll speak to you again soon. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Joe. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Seth. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Perspectives, done in partnership with KPMG, part of AMA's The Long Short Podcast. We trust you found the discussion both interesting and insightful. You can get the latest episodes by subscribing to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Amazon Music, or streaming directly from AMA.org. Thanks for listening.